Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we started a couple weeks ago uh, in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's letter uh, to a young church in Corinth, a church that he had founded uh, through his own preaching ministry, uh, planting that church about five years prior. And now he's writing a letter to them to talk about the way that they should be built up and grow together as a church as they grow towards maturity in Christ. We've called this series The Cross-Shaped Community because over and over again in this book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to draw us and draw our attention to what it means that we are to be people shaped according to the self-giving love of Jesus as we see it on the cross. In a world uh, that's full of pride, we're to be a people of humility. In a world that's bent on greed and acquisition, we're to be a people of self-giving generosity. In a world bent on self, we're called to be a people of love, a people who take our cues on what it means to love from the cross of Jesus. And so, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 3, 4. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. What is a spiritually mature person? Uh, What does a spiritually mature person look like? That's the question uh, that Paul presses in this passage and that he draws us to look at. What does it mean to be spiritually healthy, to be spiritually mature? You know, it's a timely question. I think people both inside the church and outside the church in our day and age are longing for a kind of spiritual health and maturity. Right? There's an awareness that if we're going to be whole and healthy human beings, that it requires that we not only be uh, physically healthy and emotionally healthy and physically healthy, but also spiritually to be healthy. 
And nearly everyone who thinks about spiritual health, about spiritual maturity, uh, thinks that it means something, uh, if it means anything, it means something about kind of rising above or beyond the basic teachings of their religious community. Right? I mean, think about it. Uh, the last time you heard somebody describe themselves as spiritual, the last time you sat down with somebody and they said, you know what, I am like really spiritual. Um, maybe you've described yourself that way. Uh, I'd encourage you not to. It comes off as a little pretentious. Um, but the last time you heard somebody say, I'm like super spiritual, what did they mean by it? Right? It's likely that they followed it with, I'm super spiritual, but I'm not, I'm not religious. Right? In an effort to distance themselves from maybe the teachings and, and communities of organized religion. Right? You may have heard or been a Christian who described yourself as, I'm super spiritual. And most likely what that person means is to distinguish themselves somewhat from the spirituality of just everyday Christians. Right? Oh yeah, there's people who get together and they go to church and all that, but I've you know what, I've risen beyond that. Now I read books on prayer and spirituality. Maybe that's what they mean on either, whether inside the church or outside. Maybe that just means that they like to go on long walks on the beach and contemplate the meaning of life. Uh, maybe it means that they have some type of uh, spiritual practice. Maybe they uh, practice yoga. Maybe they wear yoga pants and dress like they go to yoga all day. Um, but we, it's almost a universally acknowledged common good that we should aspire to be spiritual, that we should aspire to cultivate that part of our lives. And yet, uh, it's almost uh, impossible to nail down what we mean by that, by what it means to be a spiritually whole, to be a spiritually mature human being. Do we grab a little bit from every, every one of those buckets and say, I'm going to try a little bit of this, I'm going to try a little bit of that? Does becoming spiritual necessarily mean that we place ourselves above or beyond others, either in the church or outside of it? What do the scriptures say? What does Paul say about what it means to be a spiritually healthy, a spiritually mature person? You know, this is an important question for us to ask. It's an important question uh, to ask if you're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, to ask what does it mean to be spiritually mature is to ask, what am I, what am I becoming? What am I supposed to be becoming? If I'm in Christ, what is he doing in my life? What's he trying to produce in my life? Paul tells us that each one of us is being built up into maturity in Christ. So what's it going to look like? What am I in the midst of becoming, or should I be in the midst of becoming? If you're here with us and you're not yet a Christian, it's a really important question to know what does the Bible say that a spiritually mature person is? Because essentially, if I was considering a, a faith, I would want to know, uh, what am I buying here? What is, what is the process going to end in, right? What's, what's the after picture look like, right? If you're joining a gym, they show you all the before and after pictures. What's the after picture of the Christian life? What am I supposed to be becoming if I join in this life with Christ, following after him, becoming his disciple? And so that's what Paul turns his attention to in this section of his letter to the church in Corinth. And what we see in Corinth uh, is eerily similar to what we face in our own lives. That the church at Corinth also assumed that to attain to spirituality meant moving, on, uh, moving beyond and above the basic message of Christianity, the basic message of the gospel that they heard. They thought that it meant moving above and beyond the other Christians in their community. Remember, we saw at the end of our passage last week 
that Paul says when he founded the church in Corinth, he did it not with wisdom or eloquence or fancy words, but with the simple and powerful message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And well, the Corinthians, that was good enough for them for a while. But then some of them began saying, okay, I've got that part. I understand now, yeah, yeah, the bit about Jesus, the bit about the cross. Now I need the other stuff. Now I need to move above and beyond that stuff to get the good stuff. And so they began doing what they did out in Corinth before they were Christians. Remember we said that life in Corinth was cutthroat and competitive, that people were preoccupied with getting ahead, with making a name for themselves. And so now, all of a sudden, these Corinthian Christians just bring that into the church, and they start competing with one another about who's the most spiritual. Some would say, well, you know what, I'm the most spiritual because I uh, have esoteric wisdom. I know the secret things of God. And I can reveal them to you. Right? Others would say, no, no, I'm, I'm more mature because I have miraculous gifts. I'm able to pray and God does things. I'm able to pray for people and they get healed. I'm able to speak in languages that angels understand. And so I'm just a little bit better than those other Christians. Others looked and said, no, no, but look at all the knowledge that I have. Look at all of the philosophical wisdom and theological knowledge. Because I'm smarter and I know more, I'm better than those other Christians. And still others would say, you know what? See if you can believe this. Because I'm prosperous, because I've been successful in my life, successful in my career, because I've got wealth, well, that's just obvious that God's blessing me more. It's obvious then that I'm just a little bit better uh, than the rest of you people. And so they started doing that to one another to prove who was closer to God, who were the A-team Christians, and who were the B-team Christians, who were the varsity, who were the junior varsity. Right? And we still do this. For 2,000 years, Christians have been doing this to one another. It varies from church to church what you do to kind of make yourself feel a little bit better. In some churches, in, uh, in, in Presbyterian churches like this one, sometimes it is what we know. Right? I know more. I understand more. In other churches, it's more kind of spectacular acts of faith or sacrifice. But there's something in the human heart that doesn't want to just stay at a place of receiving from God. We want to start jockeying for position against one another for who's closer to God. There's a kind of spiritual elitism and competition that crept into Corinth uh, and it creeps in uh, to our church as well. And so into this situation, Paul comes and he lays what is really a brilliant trap for these Corinthian readers. Um, he uses irony in a really powerful way in order to set these people up for a punchline that is absolutely devastating. Uh, so what he does, if you, if you don't understand that he's using irony, it can be hard to understand him here. Because remember, the last part of last week's passage, he said, remember when I was with you, I didn't have secret wisdom or eloquence but just the simple message of the gospel. And now here at the beginning of our passage in 2, 6 through 9, he seems to be saying, but actually I do have secret wisdom. Right? So which is it? I don't have secret wisdom, I do have secret wisdom. But what he's doing in effect is saying, Corinthians, you want secret knowledge? I've got secret knowledge. Come here. You want spiritual power? I've got something for you. Come here. You want to know, you want to think of yourself as spiritual and as elevated and as a truly spiritual person? I have what you're wanting. And you can almost feel the Corinthians leaning in. Yeah, this is Paul. Paul's going to tell us. 
Paul's going to tell us how to be spiritual. He's going to tell us how to be wonderful. And then he gets them with the punchline at the end, which is essentially, if you look at uh, the first verses of chapter 3 there, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. What he essentially says is, you people think you're mature, you think you're wise, you think you're something. You're acting like a bunch of spoiled babies. You're dividing over one another, you're bickering with one another, you're competing against one another. If you claim to be mature, why are you being such jerks to each other all the time? What Paul's saying is, look, the, 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 the diagnostic tool to understand whether you're a spiritual person is not whether you say you're a spiritual person. It's not whether you put on the act of being a spiritual person. It's not whether you've adopted the language of being a spiritual person. It's whether or not you love in a way that shows that you know what it is to be loved, in a way that if you extend grace, in a way that says, I know what it is to, ex- to receive grace. It says you can't extract spiritual maturity out of the human realm of relational maturity, of love and of kindness. Right? That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13, the passage we'll get to in, in several weeks. That great passage of, about love that we read at weddings, but really has very little to do with weddings. Where he says, if I claim to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I can speak with words of eloquence, but don't have love, I'm just a noisy, resounding gong. Right? He's saying the measure of maturity, the measure of wholeness and spirituality is love. It's unity. It's giving yourself uh, to one another. And so Paul uh, sets this incredible trap uh, for the Corinthians. And it's important to know that. You know, uh, the, the words that Paul uses here, where he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. These are favorite verses of cult leaders, right? I mean, you can see where this would be. Somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got special wisdom. I've got a special message for you, a special revelation that only I've been given. And if, if you pay me enough, if you sell your house, give me your money and move to a compound with me or whatever, uh, I'll tell you the secret message. Right, so we have to be very careful. We want to be uh, people that aren't gullible uh, for things like this. And so you have to understand Paul's using that language uh, in an ironic way to set them up. And he leads them, uh, after exposing them, to this message. He says, look, you want to be a real spiritual person. Here's how it happens. Spirituality in the Christian religion, in the Christian faith, is never lowercase s spirituality. It's never vague spirituality. It's uppercase S spirituality, the spirituality of the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity, comes into our lives, he invades our lives, and reveals Jesus to us. And that's basically the the message that Paul's saying here. He says, look, you want to grow up into maturity. It starts the very same way that you came to Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you so that you see him clearly. And then the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus through you as your life comes to take more and more the smell and character and texture of the cross. The Spirit opens our eyes and reveals Jesus to us. And then as we're shaped in him, he comes to reveal Jesus through us uh, to a watching world. First, he reveals uh, Jesus to us. Look at these verses uh, 9 and 10. He says, as it is written, and here he mixes a couple of quotations from Isaiah. 
He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So what he's saying is that the, the secret things of God that he's talking about, Paul's already defined for us, is that's, God talk, that's his way of talking about God's plan of redemption. His plan to show his love for his world through the cross. And what he says is that the Spirit reveals that inner plan of God, the love of God, to shed light on the cross. So when we look at the cross, we see it for what it is. We see it as a miraculous and powerful demonstration of God's love for us and his love for the world. The Spirit opens our eyes to see at the cross his love for us. And then Paul has this great, great little bit of logic. He says, because who can understand what's going on inside of a person except for the spirit of that person? Right, if I were to say to you, guess what I'm thinking right now? Any takers? Anybody want to guess? I was thinking about the electric slide uh, and a time I had to dance it at a sixth grade birthday party. How would you have known that? Right? You could not have known that. You might have thought he's thinking about lunch, he's thinking about his message, he's thinking about what he's going to say next. But what Paul's saying basically is you can't understand what's going on in somebody, inside of somebody if you're not inside of somebody, and only that person's spirit really knows what's going on. And what we have in the, in the Holy Spirit is the very spirit of God, the very presence of God, making God's inner life known to us, letting us uh, opening our eyes so that when we see the cross, we don't just see a failed Messiah. We don't just see a sad story of a would-have-been religious teacher dying. We look at the cross and we see God's love for us. We see it not just as something that happened 2,000 years ago, but something that happens in a lived reality for us and on our behalf. The Spirit over and over in the Bible exists to shed light on Jesus, to draw our attention to Jesus. And he shows us Uh, the power of the cross. You know, this means uh, that Christianity, first and foremost, is something that happens to you, right? You know, these people that were getting puffed up and feeling good about their own spirituality, about their own uh, progress and wisdom and knowledge and prayer and all these things. Paul says, no, no, no. Where is there any room for pride when Christianity is essentially something that gets thrown on you from outside of you? The Spirit invades your life in such a way that it throws your eyes open so that you see God's love in Jesus. And then he creates faith in you so that you respond to that call. It's like winning the lottery or getting struck by lightning. It's just it's something that happens to you and you did nothing to make it happen to you. It's that the Spirit births some kind of new life in you. So then how can you brag about that? How can you boast about that? How can you say I'm a better lightning strike victim than the person sitting next to me? It's something that you did nothing to earn that came on you and the Spirit opened your eyes to Jesus. There's this wonderful story about William Wilberforce, uh, most, uh, most famous. He was uh, an, act, uh, an activist member of parliament uh, at the, in the 19th century who worked to get slavery abolished in the English Empire, in the British Empire. 
a wonderful man. Uh, he came to faith. He was born into a, a wealthy uh, landowning family in England. Uh, had the kind of lukewarm attachment to Christianity that you just had by virtue of being born into the Church of England. But then God got a hold of his heart and he was born into new life in Christ. And he tells the story at one point of wanting to bring one of his friends who he grew up with uh, to come to the same knowledge of Jesus that he had come to. So he took his friend William Pitt, uh, himself a uh, one-time prime minister of England, and he wanted to bring him to hear a preacher with him. And so he took him to hear a preacher named Richard Cecil, who was a revival preacher in that era of England. And this is a, a, a brilliant preacher. He was one of John Newton's good friends. And so Wilberforce got his friend Pitt to come and listen to Cecil's sermon with him. And as, as Richard Cecil stood up and preached, Wilberforce was thinking to himself and wrote in his journal that he was preaching the gospel with such power and with such eloquence, that it was such a convincing message, that he was painting such a beautiful picture of who Jesus was, that he was just so overjoyed that his friend Pitt was there to hear the gospel with him, and surely he was going to be moved to faith. Right? You know what that feeling's like. You bring a friend to church, and you're like, please don't please don't let this be the Sunday that the preacher talks about money or sex or something that puts me in a weird spot. And then there he is. The, the, the preacher is just preaching this incredible message about Jesus. And he's saying, surely my friend is going to come to faith. And as they walk out, Pitt leans over to him casually and says, you know, Wilberforce, I haven't the foggiest idea what that man's been talking about. And Wilberforce's heart sank. Two people, two very educated people, two people with perfectly working minds and ears hear the same talk, the same message, and one of them, their heart is moved. Their heart is moved to joy and to worship, to know that this this story that he's telling isn't just a story out there and about back then, it's a story about me. It's God's love for me. And for the other man, it's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It It doesn't land in his heart in a meaningful way. Because the Spirit has to move in order for the message to connect. God has to wake us up in order to hear it. French theologian uh, Cesar Milan, not the dog whisperer. I had to look that one up. That was another Cesar Milan. But a French theologian said this. He said, God awoke me as a mother wakens her child with a kiss. That God woke me up from my sleep like a mother wakes her child up with a kiss. Christianity is something that happens to you. Paul knew that, right? It happened to him when he was riding uh, on his way to Damascus, seeking to persecute the church, and then a blinding light, and Jesus appears, and he, he loses his sight to gain it again. But he had to have Christ open his eyes, shine his light so that he could see. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that if you're wondering, well, if Christianity is something that happens to you, what do I do if it hasn't happened to me? Uh, What do I do if if maybe it's happened to me? Right? Maybe it's happened to me, but maybe it didn't feel like a blinding light. Maybe it happened to me, but God's love doesn't feel like a mother's kiss. What do I do when 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 I wonder if what has to happen has happened? Well, good news. The good news is that you're here this morning. Uh, If you're listening to this message, you're here this morning. And the fact that you're here this morning speaks that there is some kind of hunger in your heart for something beyond what you know, something beyond your own life. 
Now, you may have gotten dragged here by a spouse or a friend, and there may not be such a hunger, but more than likely, you're here because there's a hunch or a longing for something beyond. And the reality is in that each of our life, that light starts, that life starts as a longing, as a longing for something true, for something gracious, for something good. Maybe you're not even sure you want it yet. Maybe you're here and you're only half sure, but do you, do you wish that you wanted it? Do you want to have wanted to want it, maybe? Is there even the beginning of a longing to know God, to know him in a personal and real way, to know that what Christ gave on the cross wasn't just uh, some religious teaching, but that it's true for you? Well, ask God to reveal it to you. One of the prayers that in, in my years of ministry that it seems like God loves to answer is, Jesus, show yourself to me. Jesus, show yourself to me. If you're real, show yourself to me. Let me feel uh, your love. Let me see the cross as something that's for me, not just for the world generally, but for me in particular. I don't know that I can believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to embrace it. That is a prayer that God loves to answer. And so we come to the faith when the Spirit opens our eyes to show Jesus to us. We grow in the faith in the exact same way. As the Spirit continues to lead us to Jesus and to show us Jesus, as we continue to look at Jesus when we're sinful, when we're guilty, when we're struggling, to look at Jesus as our source of grace. Martin Luther said, for every one look at your sin, you need to take ten looks at Jesus. Right, if you're somebody who's prone to looking at your sin over and over again, who's prone to looking at your addiction over and over again, who's prone to define yourself by your guilt and your shame, for every one look at your sin, let the Spirit lead you to look at Jesus, to look at his grace for you ten times. But the Spirit not only reveals Jesus to us, he reveals Jesus through us. But the model of Christian spiritual maturity is the cross. It's living our lives in such a way that we lay down our lives for the people around us. That our lives become marked by the humility, love, generosity of Jesus. Look at what Paul says. I love uh, this last flourish that he gives in, uh, in verses 3 and 4 here. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, so in the midst of their bragging, are you not being merely human? Right? Are you not living just like men and women who don't have the Holy Spirit? Are you not living as merely natural people left to figure out their own spirituality? But by the gift of the Spirit, you're actually capable of living a different kind of life. You're actually capable of living a life that looks to Jesus to be shaped by his love and mercy and that then pours out that love and mercy to others. You're not only capable of seeing Jesus, but of revealing Jesus in your callings and where he's placed you, in those hard, humble, and hidden ways that Christians are often known in their service. You know, I want to draw your attention. I don't often reference announcements in the sermon, uh, but I do want you to look at the back of your bulletin. There's a class coming up that we're offering uh, called Parenting by Grace, uh, coming up at the end of September. Parenting by Grace. Listen, for most, you know, so, some of the kids are still in here. Uh, you don't have to plug your ears. Uh, but a lot of the kids have left. Parents, is anybody, can anybody admit that parenting is an area where you need grace? 
right? Can any, none of the children that are still in here, but some of those kids sometimes get on their parents' nerves, right? Some of those kids sometimes leave their parents at a place where you know that you need a help beyond yourself, right? And the answer uh, for figuring out how to parent isn't by getting, just getting better at it. It's not learning better tips and tricks, learning more wisdom, although there's certainly a place for that. It's for this work of the cross to work its way out in this relationship, right? We said that Paul says that, that you have to define spiritual maturity by how you love, by how you relate to those around you. And sometimes the closest relationships in your life, parents to children, children to parents, are one of the hardest relationships for that to get fleshed out in. They're the people that we're shortest with most often. They're the people that most often stretch our patience. And I'm speaking both ways there, right? Sometimes parents, uh, you stretch your children's patience. And so the point of this class is simply to say we need grace in our parenting. In that hard and hidden work of parenting, we need to see Jesus. We need to see his grace for us. And then we need to learn and we need to beg for his grace to flow through us. What our children most need from us is to get grace from us, to see us repenting of our sins, to see us laying down our lives, to see us pointing them to our Savior. So, if at all possible, the uh, couple of great couples, uh, Baird and Alice Fulgham, Wink and Raina Cherry, are going to be offering that co- course here on Sunday mornings uh, before the service. We'd love for you to sign up uh, to do that. Because this inner life, this inner spiritual life of seeing and displaying Jesus works out most often in the most humble, difficult, uh, in hidden places of our lives. Rarely, the reason that people bragging about being spiritual feels so pretentious to us is because in the gospel, spirituality usually gets worked out in out-of-the-way places that hardly anybody sees. It gets worked out in small works of faith uh, that don't make headlines, uh, that don't get much publicity, and that few people ever notice. There's a beautiful picture at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, uh, which is a kind of an, uh, an allegory of a group of people who take a pilgrimage from hell to heaven. And they're, they're seeing what they see there in heaven. And it, it's instructive about uh, the life in Christ and awakens the imagination to think about uh, what heaven might be like. But the narrator uh, sees this vision of a woman who is absolutely radiant. She's attended by angels. She seems to glow from her face and her clothes. She's surrounded by other people, other spirits who seem to be giving her honor and following her as though she's somebody truly and deeply important. The main character asks of his his guide, I'll quote, he says, is that, is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green so she was a, a no-name person with a generic name who lived in a small little neighborhood. You never would have heard of her. It's not Mary. It's not Hannah. It's not Elizabeth. It's not one of the great ones that you know. It's not Mother Teresa. Someone you never would have heard of. Her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. But she seems to be, well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. I, she's one of the great ones. But surely you have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Fame in God's sight 
uh, and fame in this world's eyes are two very different things. In this world, it looks like bragging and boasting, even about spiritual things. But in God's eyes, uh, it looks like a life that looks like the cross of Jesus, laid down in acts of love, service, and hidden sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that we would long to attain fame in your eyes than the fame that this world affords. We pray that in our pursuit of spiritual wholeness and maturity, that we wouldn't give in to posing and pretending, that we wouldn't give in uh, to trying to position ourselves as looking uh, better or deeper or bigger than others, but that we would never tire of simply saying, I am a sinner loved by Jesus. I am a sinner uh, who's found my life at the cross of Jesus. I'm a sinner who Jesus is revealing himself to by his spirit. I'm a sinner who's being made new and starting to reveal some picture, though dim, of the love of Christ flowing through me in my life. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, we pray that you would make it real uh, in us and through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.